And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of The Athletic Soccer Show. I'm Jeff Reuter, and today is March 13th, and we have the findings, the results from the independent investigation into the allegation of domestic violence um, against Greg Berhalter from his time at the University of North Carolina. Uh, we have the full findings of this. There's a lot to unpack, and so I am back here with Paul Tenorio to go through the takeaways uh, what this means for people in the present and what is to come for U.S. soccer, Giovanni Reina, Claudio Reina, Greg Berhalter, all of the people involved. So, Paul, just <laughs> there are so many ways that you can go about this to start. But what would, in your professional estimation, be the main takeaways from today's findings? Well, I think the, the high level, the 30,000 foot view here is going to be first and foremost in regards to Greg Berhalter that the investigation found that he was honest and forthright about the incident. We know that they had already, the Berhalters had already put out a public statement detailing the incident 31 years ago in which Greg Berhalter uh, kicked his now wife, then girlfriend, Rosalind Berhalter. The details of that incident were backed up by the investigation and, and interviews with witnesses um, who were informed about the incident back when it occurred in 1992. I think notably also the investigation said that he was, that Greg Berhalter is employable, that there isn't any liability for anyone that would employ him um, 31 years after the fact. I, I would say, I do want to note that the investigation was very clear in saying like, this incident should not have happened. It's not okay that it happened. There's no mm -hmm. excuse for why it happened. But that Greg Berhalter also said those things. In fact, he told investigators, I still need to own this um, when they first reached out to him about the incident. Um, but I think it is notable that that they they came to the conclusion that um, there's no reason why he shouldn't be employed either by U.S. Soccer or someone else. And in the statement, U.S. Soccer provided, they said that he remains a candidate for the USMNT coaching position after taking the team to the World Cup in 2022. Um, on the flip side of it, the other part of the investigation involves the Reinas um, and what was called a pattern of, peri or of periodic outreach by Claudio Reina to, to U.S. soccer officials. Certainly, we also saw a little bit of Danielle Reina's uh, involvement here, not a little bit, a lot of Danielle Reina's involvement in um, bringing this incident to light. And I would say that you know this investigation certainly brings to light even more of those backroom dealings involving the Reina family, the way that they acted towards U.S. soccer officials, complaints that they were lodging via text messages, via emails, um, going back as far as 2016 when Gio Reina was in the U.S. Soccer Development Academy. Claudio Reina was uh, the sporting director at NYCFC at the time. So um, I think it was um, for the Reinas an investigation that, that um, you know, painted them in a very poor light and, and certainly I think makes it very difficult for Claudio Reyna, um, who has worked as a sporting director of two different MLS teams, obviously stepped down from Austin FC earlier this year while this investigation was unfolding. Um, but, you know, overall, I, again, I think the takeaways are Greg Berhalter 
um, in a way, I think, I don't know, I don't want to use the word cleared because the incident mm. was spelled out in color and in detail, and it was not a, a positive incident. Obviously, it was something something very, very negative, right. um, but cleared to work again. Um, and, you know, Gio Reyna, I think, is put in a difficult position here also by the actions of his parents. Yeah, you already mentioned Claudio Reyna stepping down from his position as the chief soccer officer of Austin FC as this investigation was ongoing. This was in the month of February, if I remember right. Um, you know, I think that it's a conversation we've been having for over a decade, Paul, about you know youth soccer culture in the United States and parents overstepping boundaries and not respecting. And I think, unfortunately, at this point, Claudio Reyna's legacy and Danielle's, his wife, does change a little bit from being so much about you know Claudio as Captain America to being the highest profile example of this sort of youth soccer entitlement culture that we've been, uh, you know, seeing an increase of over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and the Burhalter side, you already touched on the fact that he is deemed to be hireable in this case. Uh, I, I think from, from my, where I'm sitting, there's something that we talk about in our industry of like the Friday afternoon news dump, the idea that a team, a league, a federation's least uh, savory uh, news bulletins are usually released Friday afternoon. It's when Major League Soccer's disciplinary committee announces who's going to be suspended on the weekend. Last week, uh, Rochester, New York FC announced that they would be folding um, after just one season in MLS Next Pro. This is this is very stock and standard for not just sports journalism, but journalism as a whole. I think that the fact that this comes out on a Monday afternoon does give credence and a little bit more uh, validity to the claim that he is still in contention. Burhalter, this is for another cycle as the U.S. men's national team head coach. I think that the fact that this wasn't dropped late in a week does imply some sort of, um, you know, again, credibility to his case to stay on for another cycle, potentially. Is that, I mean, it's so minor. There's only so much we can really take away from timing. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly U.S. soccer isn't hiding this. They're not trying mm -hmm. to bury it. And, and I think that was important. You know, I think it's, it's part of a shift in culture at U.S. soccer that they're trying to be more accountable. The fact that they included the entire investigation, as they did for the NWSL investigation, for the public to read, I think, was, um, was another sign of that. Well, a few names redacted to protect the identity of employees who participated in mm. the investigation. But otherwise, um, full disclosure here from U.S. soccer. And um, it lays all the facts out for anyone to read. And I think that... Um, certainly is commendable on, on behalf of U.S. soccer. Were there any open questions, just as, as you think, things that you hoped we would learn from this investigation or, or things that you, you think that the program, the fan base, the team, everyone involved kind of needs in order to be able to move on from this episode? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think if we break it down, you know, as I tried to in an explainer on, on the Athletics website, into different categories. There are different incidents that we have to consider here. The first, let's start with the Burhalters and the incident sure. that occurred 31 years ago. Um, you know, there was a fight between Greg Burhalter and, Ro and Rosalind Burhalter. They were dating. They were 18 years old. Um, in that fight, um, according to this investigation, Rosalind Burhalter struck Greg in the face. Uh, Greg pushed her down and kicked her twice and then was pushed over or tackled um, by a, a passerby. The incident ended there. Um, as Greg Burhalter had, had detailed um, in, in his, his statement with Rosalind Berhalter, but I think there were some other details here as well. You know, both college coaches were informed. Um, they interviewed both of them. One, uh, Elmar Bolovich, the UNC men's coach, um, participated, confirmed, um, that he was told by Greg Berhalter the day after Anson Dorrance, the women's coach declined to participate. He felt like it was a private matter that should be resolved within, within the families, um, but also I think, you know, what Greg Berhalter had said in that statement, there was a little bit more detail there saying that he had sought help right away. He self-reported to his academic counselor at UNC. Um, he ended up 
going and volunteering uh, at a teenage women's teenage correctional facility in Durham as a part of this, uh, wanted to pursue counseling uh, for this incident. And then later on, the pair started dating again their sophomore year. And obviously, now they've been married for 25 years. I think they have four, four children. So um, that was the incident that was detailed there. And I think what stood out to me reading the investigation was you you kind of saw time and again, the investigator saying that, you know, the Berhal- first that Greg Berhalter didn't know about the incident when he was first interviewed, was immediately forthcoming about it, um, shared all of the details, didn't hide from it. Uh, Rosalind Berhalter was interviewed the next day. Obviously, she did know what it was about um, because it was a day later, um, but also confirmed the details as they were. Um, and they uh, wrote that they were impressed with how forthright the Berhalters were in the course of this investigation. And I think it's important in, in showing kind of the credibility of the Berhalters, of Greg Berhalter, um, in kind of how he's approached the situation from day one, putting the statement out um, to talk about this incident, you know, saying he wasn't going to hide from it, saying he didn't hide from it 31 years ago, um, and and trying to be um, transparent about it. As as terrible as it was, he, he kind of owned that part of it, um, both as an 18-year-old freshman and now. Um, certainly, I think the questions are still going to be there around whether or not Greg Berhalter can come back as USMNT manager. I'm not sure what the answer is going to be. There's a lot to weigh there. But I think um, in terms of kind of this incident, I think considering what it was about, um, I think this investigation probably was, um, you know, the best case scenario for Greg Berhalter in terms of kind of confirming uh, what he had said initially, showing that there's no pattern of abuse, there weren't any other incidents that occurred over the last 31 years, that this was an isolated incident. And by the way, that's something that's backed up by multiple interviews, including with Dan uh, with Danielle Reyna who remained the best friend of Rosalind Berhalter for the last 30 years. Um, so that that part of it, I think, um, is notable for Greg Berhalter. And, and the fact that U.S. Soccer said today, again, that he remains a candidate for that job. I would note that the sporting director is still being hired. U.S. Soccer also announced today that interviews have begun for that position and that the sporting director will make that head coaching search, mm-hmm. uh, will lead that head coaching search. But um, again, you know, I, I want to pick my words carefully here because it is an in incident involving, um, you know, a man kicking a woman. But I think, um, you know, certainly the tone of the investigation was one of uh, forthrightness from from Greg Berhalter and Rosalind Berhalter. Yeah, I, I think that in, in many ways, the, the biggest revelations regarding those two, the Berhalters in this actually was something about how they responded to the process and how forthcoming they were about clarifying what the incident was. There was a small notion talking about how what led to the incident was an episode of inebriated teenage jealousy um, as well. So there's a little bit more context around that night in Chapel Hill. Um, I think that there's much more context to be added to the Reina side. So maybe let's move on to that portion here um, where you get the, you know, what you already used, the, the term that the the law firm used, which is a pattern of periodic outreach. We have three or four specific instances in which Claudio Reyna specifically is reaching out to a redacted employee of U.S. soccer and then eventually Ernie Stewart after he is appointed as sporting director, talking about things such as travel accommodations for a youth national team, not flying business class, um, the presence of a female as the center official of a youth national team game. Uh, questions about the standard of officiating and whether or not a red card should be redacted while Giovanni Reyna was playing for New York City FC's academy teams as well. Um, And just generally about the operation of the now defunct development academy model, which U.S. soccer used for its youth systems for quite some time. Um, Paul, 
how does this change how we look at not just the specific aftermath of the World Cup and everything that happened during the World Cup regarding Giovanni Reina's his playing time and then his parents' interaction, but now also just the way that uh, that family how differently they are positioned, perceived to be amongst the U.S. soccer community than they were one year ago. Yeah, I mean, I think undoubtedly the reputation of Claudia Reyna has changed forever in U.S. soccer circles. I mean, this is a two-time captain, World Cup captain of the U.S. men's national team, uh, one of the top players in its history, and he's going to be remembered for the way he acted behind the scenes um, regarding his son. Like you said, I mean, there are emails going back to when Gio Reyna was a part of the youth games and he was a sporting director at NYCFC at that time sending emails um, you know that email regarding a female center referee is going to be a part of his legacy you know saying that it, it should be a men's referee for a game this serious um, you know I, I think certainly the text messages that both Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride shared during the World Cup of Claudio Reyna complaining about his son not playing against Wales after what we know occurred with Gio Reyna in the lead up to that Wales game mm-hmm. Um, which I think is a pretty clear explanation for why he didn't play against Wales. Um, you know, the fact that they were um, causing problems in the family um, program of of the U.S. soccer members, the families um, that were there in Qatar, that Daniel Reyna wouldn't get on the bus that she initially rode on because the Burhalter family was on the bus and, you know, later approached an employee to apologize for her behavior the day before, but then saying, that, uh, you know, something along the lines of, quote, once this tournament is over, I can make one phone call and give one interview and his cool sneakers and bounce passes will be gone. You know, certainly alluding to, you know, some sort of knowledge that she had about Greg Berhalter. Brian McBride recounting a conversation he had with Claudia Reyna and Danielle Reyna um, ahead of the England game saying, you know, it's not a conversation he would have with any other parents, but out of respect for Claudio and their friendship, he sat down and that, you know, in that conversation, Claudio told him, quote, you guys don't even know what we know about Greg. Um, so, you know, alluding to these this knowledge that they had that they eventually, um, you know, told Ernie Stewart during a phone conversation, um, you know, after the World Cup, when the stories about Gio Reyna came, you know, first uh, in Greg Berhalter's quotes about an unnamed player that were supposed to be off the record. I think we should note off the record comments in a leadership council uh, event, a leadership event about an unnamed player, which we at The Athletic eventually reported was Giorena with some of the details of those problems, um, and that she then disclosed this 31-year-old incident to uh, Ernie Stewart. Um, and the investigation concluded essentially that she she had decades to speak about this incident, mm-hmm. incident and that the timing of it certainly was indicative of, of maybe trying to uh, prevent Greg Berhalter from coming back as the national team coach. So I mean, you just heard how much we we talked about there, how much I talked about there of these different things that were spelled out in this investigation. Yeah. I mean, this is what the Reina legacy is going to be. And I I, I think also it's going to be a difficult, difficult thing for Gio Reina to navigate now in his own career. He's still such a young player. Um, these are not his actions that we're talking about. You know, these are his father's actions when he's a youth player. They're his mother and father's actions when he's at the World Cup playing. Um, I think it's notable what Anthony Hudson told me in a sit-down interview saying, you know, we had an incident with Gio at the World Cup regarding his effort. We addressed it with him. He had a positive response to that address, and we move forward as far as Gio Reyna is concerned. That camp is over. The incident is over, and, and now we're moving forward. And And he went and sat with, with Gio Reyna in Dortmund. So I, I think it's important to try to separate the two, if you can, between the actions of, G, of Gio Reyna, which, you know, certainly were not great 
in Qatar, but were addressed and and the team moved on in Qatar. And then you have the actions of Claudio and Danielle Reyna, which are separate, um, even though it's the same family. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct TV satellite free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get direct TV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream direct TV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream direct TV without a satellite dish. Call 1 800 direct TV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Yeah, that, that was something that we saw a pattern developing throughout the aftermath of the World Cup where there would be something happens uh, publicly, whether it's Greg Berhalter speaking at the symposium off record, as you alluded to, and then news coming out about Danielle and Claudio Reyna having a role to play in that. And then the following day, Giovanni Reyna's only thing he can do is make a social media post, essentially saying we're all trying to focus on what's next. We're trying to focus. I'm, I'm, I'm back with Dortmund. I'm looking forward to that. We're looking forward to the next four years ahead of the 2026 World Cup, whatever the case may be. I, I, I think that it is fair to say that at this point now, there is additional scrutiny and pressure that Gio will face for actions that were not his own. Um, beyond, of course, his own effort and his own work, uh, ethic at this World Cup when it became clear he would have a more reduced role than he had expected. Uh, but I do think that it will put him under the public eye for quite some time. You can imagine that there will be, um, you know, heckles against him from opposing fan bases for years to come about his parents, that there will be attention paid, especially 
as one of the starring figures of this next un- or this current generation of U.S. men's national team players being sort of at the centerpiece of it, one of the stars of this group, he is going to have tremendous pressure to continue to live up, not just on the field with his goals and his assists, his chance creation, his progressive movement, but also with how he acts off the field. There will be a little additional color scrutiny every single time that there is any incident that another player, another teammate of his, fairly or unfairly, may not get the same sort of criticism for. I think that inevitably that will be a part of Giovanni Reina's career for the foreseeable future. Uh, When you look at it from U.S. soccer's side, then, you already said that there are ongoing, uh, there's an ongoing search for a sporting director, which would come before the head coaching search, which would either bring Greg Berhalter in for a second tenure or hire his replacement. But what else is next for U.S. soccer now that they have concluded this investigation? I think the hope now is that the U.S. soccer can move forward from this incident. And the question is, how do they move forward? So I think that's the biggest challenge Greg Berhalter faces in his quest or his desire to be the national team coach for this next cycle ahead of the 2026 World Cup. You know, could he be the coach and could U.S. soccer still move forward from all of this with Greg Berhalter leading the way? So when it comes to Greg Berhalter, those are the two the, the, that's the big question regarding U.S. soccer. If he doesn't take the U.S. soccer job, you know, there probably will be interest in Greg Berhalter um, with club teams, both abroad and here in Major League Soccer as well. So um, for Greg Berhalter, it's going to be about whether or not he can still be considered as a coach who can help the federation move forward, help the team move forward. Mm. Um when it comes to Gio Reyna, you know, there's an upcoming camp, uh, the Nations League at the end of this month. Will he be ready to come back in and play for the U.S. men's national team, you know, a week after this investigation drops? I don't know. Um, but eventually he's going to have to be reintegrated into this group. He is, as you said, an important part of this team. He's still just 20 years old. Um, he's He's been an influential player early in his career, certainly going through some ups and downs at Dortmund as well as with the national team. And he's had injury problems and all of that. Even if you look at the last couple months with Dortmund, comes back playing, scores three goals, then trying to fight his way back into the squad. His performances have been up and down. That's to be expected for a young player. Right. He's going to be a part of this team. So how do you reintegrate him into the team? How's he received by his teammates? Um, and then lastly, from the Federation, you know, again, it comes down now to not just a coaching search, but a sporting director search. What do they want out of that position? What are they going to be looking for? Ernie Stewart was a was an experienced sporting director. He had worked at two different teams um, before coming to U.S. soccer, both one in Holland, one in MLS. He's a, a former player of the U.S. men's national team, had played in World Cups. You know, do they go down that same path or do they go down another path? Um, same question to ask with coaches. Outside of Jurgen Klinsmann, it's been all American coaches for the U.S. in the modern history since, I guess, probably going back to Bora. Yeah. You know, do you go to an American coach or do you go for an experienced European manager? These are the questions that now we'll turn our attention to because it's very, very important and very influential as to what this U.S. men's, men's national team is going to look like over the next four years. You know, let's focus on that sporting director search just a little bit more while we've got time, um, because I, I, this is something that came up on our staff call this morning is weighing the importance of being U.S. soccer's sporting director compared to what we all perceive to be a sporting director's role at a club in terms of talent identification, building the the sporting framework of a club, uh, hiring coaches, all of that. There's a very different job description once you get to a national team setup. And so when you talk about, again, 
Ernie Stewart had his bona fides in terms of working as a club sporting director. This wasn't just a case where he was someone who was around, but there is a perception, a growing perception, especially that U.S. soccer tends to hire their own, that they have something of a boys club network where they are looking towards past players, past coaches to take on leadership roles, to continue to have this sort of um, kind of in in their mind, a cohesive identity across generations, I would imagine. Um, but after this incident, is there maybe an increased discussion to be had? I, I'm not necessarily sure we need to cast a verdict here, Paul, but is there some some factor of this where maybe it is important to have a sporting director who the parents of the players on the team don't have their cell phone number and aren't popping off text because they have decades long friendships? Is there something now where maybe this role needs to carry a different sort of tone compared to what it has in the past? Yeah, I would warn the opposite. I would warn that if you're making a decision based on the actions of Claudio Reyna and Danielle Reyna of these types of text messages, you're not looking at the most important thing. And and U.S. soccer isn't alone, by the way, um, in hiring its own to run the federations. I think if you looked across federations around the world, people who are from that country of history with that federation, with those national teams are usually running those federations, not all the time, but a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's a unique thing that U.S. soccer has gone there. I would also remind people, you know, after what happened in Cuba, the call from the fans was that there's not enough soccer knowledge in U.S. soccer. That's right. And people celebrated the hire of people like Ernie Stewart, Brian McBride coming back in and, and that you know, the executives weren't making the decisions anymore, that these Mm. were quote unquote soccer people making the decisions. I think the most important thing, though, is not nationality when it comes to this hire. I I think we have to remember in regards to the sporting director role, the most important job that that this sporting director is going to have is hiring a coach. Mm. So Mm. I, I think I would be hopeful that U.S. soccer is looking for somebody who has experience hiring a head coach and who has had success hiring a head coach and understands what the federation is going to be looking for, what this team needs, and is going to be able to lead a coaching search. So experience matters, I think, around that specific job. The day-to-day duties of sporting director of, of a federation are much different, like you said, to a club. It's not about recruitment, looking around the world for players. There's a lot of administrative work, a lot of setting kind of the culture of U.S. soccer from the youth teams up through the senior team, hiring coaches for the youth teams, helping um integration of the youth teams up through the pros, not just like basic stuff like, oh, they need to play the same, you know, tactics. No, it's more of, okay, we know we're going to need a left back in eight years. You know, what are we doing to address that position? What are we doing to address the number nine position and working within the organization to do that in tandem with the political side of U.S. soccer? And that really does exist because you're on the, you're sitting on the board of U.S. soccer. You're working with the referees, Um, You're working with coaching education. You're working with the grassroots. Ernie Stewart spoke about it um, with both Brian Strauss from Sports Illustrated and um, with Yahoo as well about the work he's been doing to try to change the structure of the grassroots in this country. So Mm. there's a lot of that that goes into it as well. It's a, it's not, um, you know, the same skill set as running an MLS team or running a team in Holland or wherever. So, um, you know, it's going to be a different type of leader that they're looking for, but I, I am very, very interested to see, what they prioritize here. Yeah. And, and earlier in the year, uh, Cindy Parlocone had said that they would hope to conclude this by the end of spring, I believe early summer, perhaps, and that the coaching search could go on as Nations League qualifying concludes. And then ultimately you get to the Gold Cup, very likely that we'll still have an interim manager for the U.S. men's national team at that point. Um, I think that the last person that we haven't fully dissected, we looked at Claudio Reyna in terms of legacy, but I think that there also should be a quick note in terms of his uh, job prospects moving forward here. Um, 
it's a very difficult one to dissect. We're both shaking our heads right here. But overall, how do you uh, anticipate that Claudio Reyna's future is going to be his employability, to use the term that was used about Greg Berhalter earlier by this investigation? Uh, how does this change uh, how he will be perceived for sporting roles moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely changes how he's perceived and and he'll have to explain this type of action um, and he'll have to talk to future potential employers about how he's made changes to to his own approach. Um, or maybe he doesn't want to be involved in, in this side of, of soccer anymore either. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure, but I do think it'll be a, a lot more difficult for him to break into the cycle as a candidate for a job within U.S. soccer. Not impossible. You know, I think certainly this is a guy with a huge history in the game, huge history in U.S. soccer. Um, but certainly this is going to be a part of his legacy now. And he's going to have to find a way to grow from it and move past it and, and to show employers that he has done so. Paul, you've written a lot about this already. You've written a lot about this for many months now. Uh, you can find an explainer on the entire situation from Paul Tenorio up on The Athletic. You can also find his headline uh, summarizing the findings and then also something from me with an update to a timeline of the full chronicle of events dating back to 1992 and actually a little bit beforehand uh, involving the Burhalters and the Reinas. Paul, thank you again. And, and listener, thank you for tuning in to The Athletic Soccer Show here on Monday, March 13th. Hope all is well. Hey, baseball fans, this is Derek Van Riper. Now that spring training games are underway, opening day is just a few weeks away. Eno Saris and I have been getting ready for the season all winter on Rates and Barrels. Whether you're a seasoned fantasy player, a baseball stats junkie, or just someone who wants to learn more about the game, join us for four episodes each week this season, including our new Friday live stream with former big leaguer Trevor May. Check out the live stream on Fridays at 1 o'clock Eastern on the Rates and Barrels YouTube channel, or listen to the show wherever you enjoy your podcasts, including the ad-free option on the Athletic app.